Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about the liquidity crunch in the commodities markets. As prices skyrocket across the sector, organizations and traders are scrambling to find cash to cover margin calls. What got us to this point? Supply has shrunk over the last decade as banks and other organizations have exited the space due to lower returns or concerns over ESG. Meanwhile, now demand is way up with both prices and volumes increasing in the commodities sector alongside supply chain issues, making it harder to convert cash. What does this mean for the sector? What does this mean for the bankers within it and the trading houses? And how could this affect the trading landscape going forwards? Today, our guest is Lewis Hart. Lewis is the Managing Director at the private bank Brown Brothers Harriman, where he oversees the commodities and logistics and corporate banking business lines, including their long-standing commodity finance offering. As always, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on the platform you're listening on. I hope you enjoy the episode. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So we're, we're essentially zooming in on the liquidity crunch that's going on right now in the commodities world. And that has a, a number of threads to it from the supply side, from the demand side, and obviously what's going on in the, in the volatility in the markets. But it's much more systemic and much broader than just a, an acute event that we're experiencing right now. Before we sort of dig into a bit of what's sort of the history that's led us to this point and then really what's going on at the moment... Can you just help us understand commodity banking, commodity trade finance, why this is such a specialized function, both in terms of the organizations that do it and also the individuals that are in that, in that world? Sure. And what I think is fairly ironic is that if you look at commodity finance, it's really, in many ways, the oldest form of finance. If you think back to the Medici's and Renaissance Florence, um, really a lot of the birth of modern finance has its roots in trade finance and commodity finance. So when you look at today and you think about how small the number of participants is in the market today, you can only ask yourself, why is that? So in terms of why the commodity finance role is so specialized, there are a number of reasons. And I think the first is that it requires a real deep understanding of the industry. So whether it's agriculture, metals, energy, all of the logistics that support all of the value chains within each of those categories, you really need to be deep in understanding how those physical markets work. And similarly, you need to understand the financial markets, how derivatives work, how swaps work, how options work. And so that's one side of the commodity banker role. The other side of the role is you really need to have an ability to build trust and develop relationships with clients and also other participants in the commodity ecosystems. So the business really attracts people who have this strong balance of interpersonal skills and analytical skills, and they tend to be equally comfortable you know, mingling at a like a minor metals conference or evaluating a client's value at risk model. So the number of people who can do that effectively, it's few and far between. And then as you think about what the commodity banker does every day, 
they really have to be able to follow a physical commodity through the value chain as it's moving from the point of origin where the supply of the commodity is really in excess all the way to the point where it gets consumed. And to follow this chain, you really need to have an intimate understanding of your client's business and a network of intermediaries across insurance, accounting, shipping, testing and inspection, freight forwarding, and warehousing. So when you combine all of those skill sets together, it's truly a very specialized part of the financial world. And as banks have exited the sector, particularly in recent years, the number of folks with that experience has only gone down. The reason why I wanted to talk about that's going to play a crucial part in the second half of our discussion, if you'd like, about what's going on today, because that truly is affecting the supply side. So, but you've got this specialized role. Can you just take us back to maybe the global financial crisis as a good sort of starting point? When that happened, just to set the scene, you know, there was a, a large number of banks focused on the commodity sector, which had been hot for 10 years. Those banks, you know, typically a lot of them were French or Dutch banks that had very long histories in all of those things that you just mentioned, real deep skill sets in commodity finance. What was the impact of the global financial crisis and in particular the resulting regulation on the commodity trade finance space? Yeah, and I think it's instructive to look at the chronology, even over the past two decades, Paul. If you think back to sort of the early 2000s, we really had the beginning of what became a tremendous super cycle. And those were really sort of halcyon days for the trade finance and commodity finance banks. Usage was up, commodity prices were high, banks were hitting and exceeding their budgets. They were very important parts of their institutions. And when the global financial crisis hit in 2008, that super cycle really took a pause, but it was actually a fairly short pause if you go back. It actually recovered fairly quickly. And the commodity finance asset class performed, I would say, remarkably well. We like to say that it's a very low risk place to invest capital. It tends to be uncorrelated to other markets. And I would say it proved its resilience throughout that period. So, what I would say is that the industry was not immune from the regulation that took place, really the re-regulation of the entire financial services industry after 2008. And whether it was you know, Dodd-Frank causing banks to reduce the size of their trading desks, which by the way, performed an important role in financing as well as trading and market making, or the traditional commodity finance banks having to adapt to new Basel III standards, which essentially increase capital requirements for trade finance assets. And in my estimation, essentially forced a lot of banks to shrink their books. These factors all led, I would say, to a higher cost of administering the business and a lower return on capital. So, what you saw beginning, I would say, in that kind of 2012 to 2014 period, you saw the supply of credit really begin to leave the market. And that was happening in a period of very high prices. But when we had the, the large energy price correction, when crude oil went from roughly 100 to roughly $25, I think it was in the fourth quarter of 2014, 
the demand for commodity finance and the demand for working capital from traders really started to decrease. And I would say, and we'll talk about this in a second, I'm sure, but I would say that was really the beginning of another five-year period that led to our current state of affairs where supply and demand are even more imbalanced than they were in this period. This might sound an incredibly naive question, but did the regulation resulting from the financial crisis and Basel III and so forth, was that part of the cause of commodity prices collapsing and the, the ending of that super cycle? It just sucked money from the system? What, what role was it in any way causal or was it merely associated? I would say merely associated. I think it was more of a classic cycle reaching its peak and supply overrunning its course and essentially exceeding demand and that leading to lower prices. So the trade finance tightness that we saw in that period, it certainly had an impact. It resulted, I think, in many traders having to innovate and find alternative sources of capital. You really began to see non-bank lenders and other capital providers enter the market in that period. And those folks have actually, as we look today, become increasingly important. So it was not necessarily the, the proximate cause of the price collapse that we saw, but it certainly was, in my estimation, a cause for some of the, I would say, less disciplined deals, particularly in Asia, that started to occur in that 2015 to 2020 timeframe. Just to elaborate on that, many of the banks um, in this space are very reliant on energy. Energy can often make up two-thirds or 75% of a bank's book. So when prices collapsed at that magnitude, banks really were having more trouble growing their earnings in these departments. And so I would surmise that this led to an increasing pressure to find new business in order to replace the business that was lost due to lower utilization, in turn due to lower commodity prices. And so we saw in the 2015 to 2020 period, a period where actually supply of commodity finance exceeded demand for it, and there was too much capital chasing too few opportunities. Right. Yes. And then Staying on that 2015 to 2020 period, because there's, there's lots there, right? And, and we can't get into all of it. But what also then happened was a number of organizations pulled out of commodities entirely. It was almost a, a perfect storm and perhaps went unrecognized until today or the last year when suddenly demand has rushed back for the reasons we'll come on to. But in that, in that period, you had a number of French banks pull out. Um, you also had a number of U.S. banks at least shrink their positions as they, alongside their trading activities, which they many have sold or, or, or shrunk. But a lot of that pullout entirely was related to losses in Asia, as you alluded to, other concerns around dollar-denominated trades with organizations that were coming up against sanctions or, or increased scrutiny from various jurisdictions. Can you just touch on that briefly and just because that further really reduced the supply out there? Absolutely. And I would say this inexorable 
trend, you know, toward fewer and fewer market participants, you know, has continued. And and the coup de grace was really the substantial losses in Asia that banks suffered in 2019 and early 2020. Just looking at the scale of some of those defaults, it was substantial. And when you think about the earnings that these departments generate relative to the size and scale of these losses, it's quite staggering. And in some cases, I would imagine these losses represented multiple years of earnings for these departments. So originally, you know, this was largely contained to Asia, but these are global banks and they tend to run their commodity departments globally, often out of Europe. So when Asia has an issue, it impacts the Americas, it impacts Europe, and no one is really immune from those issues. So following that period, the the great sort of irony of it all is post-COVID, or certainly, you know, hopefully in the later stages of COVID, we've seen a tremendous rebound in commodity prices. And the result of that is that demand for working capital and trade finance is perhaps as high as we've ever seen it. So at the very time when banks are leaving the market, when supply of capital in this specialized space is decreasing, demand for it is only increasing. And that trend, Paul, just is particularly pronounced, I would say, among small and medium-sized enterprises, which are the types of companies we tend to support. That's, that's where the banks have really, I would say, withdrawn their commitment. The large trading houses continue to enjoy access to, I would say, plentiful liquidity. But for small and medium-sized trading companies, it's been a tough time to access capital. Yes, and and we're almost at the point of declaring liquidity crunch. There's just two more threads I want to unpick from the last five years. One we can just briefly touch on is is obviously the rise of more greater awareness around environmental issues, social and governance issues, which has meant that more organizations, more banks have retrenched from the space due to the to concerns over whether it's pollution or, or obviously carbon CO2 greenhouse gas emissions. So you see, you know, for commodities like coal are in a very different situation to commodities like power from a financing standpoint. So certainly ESG is is one of the most significant issues facing the commodity finance industry today. And I think the the principles of of ESG at at the highest level are ones we certainly subscribe to, and I would say most of the banks in the market subscribe to. But I would say a few things. One is that the standards banks use to evaluate ESG are widely disparate. You know, each institution has its own approach, and there's no uniformity in terms of how they're approaching it. Number two is that I think people often only see the E when they hear ESG. They focus very much on the decarbonization story, weaning the world off of fossil fuels, something which certainly I think most would agree is a good thing for the planet. But the pace of that transition needs to be, in our estimation, calibrated correctly. And if 
if all banks just withdraw completely from financing, especially trade financing, some of the commodities associated, I think it leads to inflation, unfortunately, and a situation where demand could still be growing at the very time when supply of capital and over time supply of that commodity could be decreasing. So I think the industry needs to figure out a way to ensure this transition continues, but to ensure the transition continues in a responsible way and that the supply and demand are more calibrated together. Right now, it's only being addressed on the supply side. And I think last I saw, for example, demand for crude oil is still around 100 million barrels a day globally. So until until we fix the demand side, it's dangerous to cut off the supply too quickly. And I think we've seen that recently with some of the energy price volatility, whether it's in Europe or in some of the extreme weather events we've seen over the past few years in the US. That really takes us up today. We're being a little bit artificial in claiming that this is a problem that has just occurred. I think the the understanding of the backdrop to this is that this is because prices have generally been low, the lower supply of liquidity and financing to the market has been acceptable. I remember clearly a, a senior leader, of one of the global trading houses saying to me, this is probably a year and a half ago, that his biggest long range concern was liquidity in the market, I should say access to trade finance, precisely for all these reasons. So it's in stark relief at the moment because we've got, you know, gas prices quadrupling, quintupling in Europe. Same with power prices. You've had these. This has caused incredible margin calls on on hedges that are out there, et cetera, et cetera. And that that ties back to what you said at the beginning about having a banker that understands that you have a a hedge that might be offset against the physical, et cetera. But you basically we're seeing exponential increase in demand for finance for capital, for working capital in the commodity space, right at this time when we've had a degradation of that market and a, a steep decline in the suppliers. Can you just, much more articulately than me, just explain why liquidity is constrained, what's going on in terms of the nature of the commodities being traded that is causing that constraint, and then we can come on to some of the impacts? Sure. And I, I think it it's very company-specific and very market-specific. So. For example, in the energy space, Paul, I think ESG is a major factor in restricting access to certain companies that are more involved in the fossil fuel sector. On the agriculture side, as a counterpoint, these ESG principles are actually attracting new sources of capital in some cases. And on the ag side, we've really seen sustainability and traceability innovations for many years. It's a pretty far advanced program, whether it's coffee, cocoa, sugar. And we're actually seeing in certain new trade finance facilities, pricing incentives that benefit the client if they meet certain social impact goals. I think what we're seeing is just fewer banks that have an appetite for the risks involved. Just to give you an example, Commodity banks are typically quite familiar with forward books, the obligations that our clients have to purchase and sell commodities in the future. In order to properly 
finance a business in this space, the bank really needs to understand margin call risk. And sometimes you have to accept what are called mark-to-market gains as collateral uh, in order to make sure your client has enough liquidity to pay that variation margin to the exchange, which actually protects the bank because it ensures that the client remains hedged and does not expose itself to price risk. So the number of banks who can write facilities that are flexible enough today to factor in potential volatility that could lead to margin calls, there are just not that many banks that can do it. So the number of originating and structuring banks has fallen. And I would say as a result, the importance of these alternative forms of capital is growing in importance. And the range of those alternative sources could be everything from trade finance funds, which are certainly becoming allies to banks in filling this void, all the way to insurance companies, asset managers, and capital markets. So the issue is the banks really have the talent and the understanding in terms of how to structure the deals. And the issue is distribution. Where do you find capital? And we're finding increasingly that capital is not coming from other banks. It's coming from these non-bank lenders who will piggyback off a bank's structuring and underwriting to get exposure to this asset class. Yes, but I guess very simply, at the moment we're seeing this constrained liquidity because you've kind of got this, and I'm reading from from our notes from our conversation before we started this, but you've got sort of the trifecta of prices going up, volumes going up, but and also the ability to convert cash slowing down because of all these supply chain issues. So those three things are really coming together right now that are really driving this liquidity crunch in the commodities world. Yes. And so I previously focused on the supply side. Let's move to the demand side where, you know, the cost of a vessel of crude oil has gone from, you know, circa $100 million to circa $200 million over the past 12 to 18 months. The price of a single container of coffee has gone from $50,000 to $100,000. And you can sort of take any commodity and think about the cost of financing it through the supply chain. And in most cases, it's doubled or more than doubled. So price is a major factor. Volume is also a factor. I think global, globally traded commodity volumes are only going up as demand increases around the world. And when you marry that with a supply chain squeeze, where getting containers off a ship on the West Coast of the US could take an extra 10 to 15 or 20 days, you're really seeing just a huge increase in working capital intensity among these businesses. So it it is those three things that's driving it. And if you're a CFO in the space thinking about how big your credit facility should be, for example, there are so many variables between how quickly can I convert my cash given the supply chain issues, what is the flat price going to be in six months, and how much am I going to need to reserve for margin calls? It's a very tricky time to be forecasting working capital for a commodity trading business. 
and as you alluded to earlier on, size now matters, right? Because typically the larger trading houses or trade entities have already built more sophisticated balance sheets to be able to access other sources of capital to face these challenges, whereas smaller ones don't have that. And, and you know, we're seeing this ourselves, right? The, the demand out there to find trade finance professionals who are able to structure and give their business optionality and think a bit more um, creatively than just, you know, what revolver there might be. You know, those people are in, in great demand precisely because of this. So you, you mentioned you have seen, and this has been going on, a shift away from the pure bank market into alternative funds, securitizations. Can you just dig into that a little? And what does that mean for the balance sheets of these trading houses? Because I imagine as well, that's whilst that's providing a security now, that is making those businesses far more complex than they ever have been, and therefore introducing new risks. Perhaps if this commodity supercycle doesn't extend for another decade, and, and it might be a short-lived one associated with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say the sophistication of trading company balance sheets has increased substantially over the last decade. And that has been partially a response to a less supportive banking community, partially also a response to the trend of traders owning more long-term assets than they historically had. So if you were to rewind the clock 25 or 30 years, the typical trading company had a very straightforward balance sheet. It essentially had shareholders' equity and bank debt, and it may have had trade credit or accounts payable. And then on the asset side, it had cash, it had accounts receivable, and it had inventory, and then all of the derivative and hedging activity as well. So as trading companies have grown in size and sophistication, and as banks have become less supportive, the diversification of funding sources has, has really increased. And so if you look at a trading company balance sheet today, particularly for a larger trader, it may have common equity, and that equity may be owned by the founder and some of the key employees, still typically privately held. And there have been some IPOs, as you know, but I would say more often than not, trading companies are better suited to a private company environment. And then you have often preferred equity, subordinated debt as you move up the balance sheet. And you may have within your current liability structure, you may have repos where you've sold inventory with an agreement to buy it back in the future. You will have some traditional bank debt and you may have done a securitization to fund your accounts receivable. And the investors in that securitization could be institutions like insurance companies or pension funds, as opposed to traditional banks. So the number of investors that are willing to play in the space is going up. And that's what's really filling the void as the banks exit the space. I would say today, we see gaps really up and down that capital structure in terms of access to funding. So it's not only in traditional commodity finance, whether it's borrowing base or transactional facilities, it's also with junior capital sources. Because as prices go up, you can only rely on the bank so much. The bank is going to have some cap on how much leverage it will allow you to take on on your balance sheet. 
So to really grow your lines, you also need to grow your junior capital sources. And often that will come from additional equity or subordinated debt. And finding folks who are interested in those pieces of the capital structure is equally challenging as finding a new bank. I think you painted a really powerful picture for us of why the supply side is down and, and why we've got this increasing demand. Just very briefly on this, obviously these in, the increasing complexity of these balance sheets, what risk does that expose these traders to that they haven't previously faced? So I think the big risk is there could be, and you need to do your homework as a banker, but there could be sources of leverage or implicit leverage that are not necessarily showing up on the balance sheet. And you need to make sure you do your best to unearth what those are. And and the clients will typically tell you, but for example, if a client is relying on a supply chain finance program, as an example, in order to get cash more quickly for receivables from its largest buyer, that supply chain finance is often not on the balance sheet of your client because that receivable has been sold under a true sale to a third party. The issue becomes if the funding dries up down the road, then that client is not going to be able to sell those receivables as quickly. They're going to have to hold those receivables on their balance sheet longer and could mean that they have to borrow more from their existing banks to keep it on the balance sheet, which could have an impact of bringing the leverage back on the balance sheet. So that's one example of, you know, I would say sort of hidden leverage in the system that needs to be identified when you're underwriting a new credit. This all starts to revolve around actually having people with the experience and institutional memory as well out there to be able to understand these things. I mean, we can assume in the very short term that we've got a rising cost of financing in the commodities world. We're already seeing that. What is the cascading impact of that situation on the, on the broader commodity sector itself and the world at large? Is this just going to accelerate inflation? What's the take on that over the next year, year and a half? Yeah, so it's an it's an interesting question, and I guess we'll talk about Brown Brothers Harriman in a minute, but I actually was looking back through our firm's history, and when you really look at the broad themes and the evolution, the firm really started as a merchant trader, really focused on Irish linen and Anglo-American trade. It evolved into an asset owner. It actually owned shipping assets in order to get a competitive advantage. And then it sort of culminated in owning a a financing business. There's a great quote from Alexander Brown where he said, it's easier to sell one signature than a bale of silk. So when you think about that evolution, I think there's some parallels to what's happening today. You know, you had this long period of traders essentially purchasing assets, and that's perhaps run its course. And now what you're seeing is the traders are in many ways, as well as the all, all the other alternative sources I mentioned, are becoming financiers themselves. And so when you think about those liquidity constraints, you have the haves and the have, have-nots. And in many ways, the haves can be a source of, of capital for the have-nots. So I think the financing aspect of the trading houses 
is only becoming more important over the next 10 years. And as we have more transparency in the world, as prices and information move ever more quickly, the trading house really has the competitive advantage if it can provide financing to its suppliers and customers. And so I would say a lot of that gap can be filled not only by the funds and the institutional investors, but also by the trading houses themselves. Mm. And it's something that the ag industry has been doing for a very long time, right? When I think about locations like Brazil, even the US, right? You know, they've they've always had that offering. Absolutely. That's very that's a really interesting point. I just want to touch on sort of transparency and digitization, but nothing fixes high prices like high prices, right? Do we expect to see the re-entry of organizations, banks, financiers that were previously in the space. There's a lot of talk about new entrants in Asia. In fact, some of the issues in, during COVID were tied to some some new financiers out there. Do you see there being a flood of new entrants, and and what does that mean for experienced talent? You know, that doesn't really exist because of this gap over the last decade. Yeah, I think there's a huge hurdle for new entrants. And there are a lot of misconceptions about commodity finance and commodity traders. You know, some of those include that they're purely speculators. I think banks generally are anxious about collateral that changes in value every day, even if other collateral they be, may be financing may be changing in value every day. They're just not seeing it. So there's a widely held perception particularly among the banking community, that commodity finance is risky. And when you add on to that, the headlines, particularly in 2019 and 2020, I think it is generally keeping would-be participants um, out of the market. That said, we are seeing you know, some new entrants out there. I would say the Asian banks are definitely stepping in to a degree. And I would also say in the US, for example, middle market banks are tiptoeing in. And in general, they're relying on banks like us and others who have expertise in structuring, in monitoring collateral, in dealing with documents and letters of credit, which are all important parts of the infrastructure that we manage for our clients. So my high level response would be, I would not expect a flurry of new participants, but here and there, I think we will see some new entrants to the market. And last but not least, there's nothing like higher returns to attract you know, new supply of capital. I would say in response to the supply demand imbalance that we've been discussing, returns have increased, particularly among the SMEs like we discussed. So over time, that will work itself out, right? The, the supply response will come. Will it come at today's cost of capital for a SME trader or will it take a little bit more? I'm not sure, but I think it's going in the direction that at some point in the future, we will see new folks coming into the market. Yeah, because it's interesting when you look at it from just the alongside the shrinkage of banks and financiers in the space, there's obviously been a huge shrinkage, much more so in the number of organizations that are actively trading and hedging in commodities or providing a trading service. And we've really ended up at a point where it's mainly been the big ones, the big trading houses that have survived, 
And those are the ones who've had the capability, the balance sheets to be able to access these alternative sources of financing, start to offer customers financing options, as you, you, you discussed. Are the hurdles now so much higher from a funding, from a risk management, from a working capital standpoint, due to volatility, due to other the issues we discussed on the supply side, that it's going to be much harder for new startups to get trading, like we've typically seen every every commodity super cycle. Do you think that's going to also limit competition as well? Yeah, I think it gives a tremendous advantage to the well-funded incumbents and is a disadvantage for new entrants. So I think, you know, consolidation, you know, is sort of a likely outcome of this where smaller traders will either be acquired or absorbed by larger traders or the teams will will join the larger trading houses because, you know, capital, working capital finance is really the lifeblood of these companies. And if they're having trouble accessing it, they're going to have trouble running their businesses successfully over time. So I would say much harder if I'm an entrepreneur looking to start my own new trading business, I'm going to have more challenges. I may be able to find a local bank who believes in me and supports me at the beginning. But as I grow and I need more sophisticated financing, it will become challenging to become medium-sized. And I hope that changes. I mean, we, we are certainly huge supporters of the middle market. We think that a lot of these middle market companies play a very important role in the economy. But at the moment, I struggle to see where all the liquidity is going to come from. And yeah, so it's going to be a really interesting dynamic how this plays out. Because also, you know, on the flip side of this, if, if the financing comes from less regulated sectors, and that there's obviously significant private money out there looking for return and yield, does that actually end up working against ESG goals, for example, um, because you're pushing the financing into less regulated darker places, you know, it's, it's, it could have the unintended consequence of that. Yeah, it's a great point and something we've thought a lot about. And, you know, I would say most of the companies who may have traditionally been focused on fossil fuels have some sort of strategy to adapt during this energy transition. And perhaps they're creating a carbon credits desk, perhaps they're involved in funding or offtake for new renewable projects. So in general, I would say companies are doing a good job adapting. But to your point, if we get into a period of prolonged, very high commodity prices or, or fossil fuel prices, as an example, that will only increase returns for those who are in the space already. So on the one hand, it sort of is the unintended consequence of capital flight is that those who remain or who are willing to invest will enjoy better returns, at least in the short and the medium term. But over the long term, on the other hand, I think high prices will also make renewables more attractive on a relative basis. So there could be a period here where returns are quite strong for sort of the old economy sectors but over time, as those prices get high, the incentive to find substitutions, particularly environmentally friendly substitutions where you may have government incentives that add to your return, I think that only becomes more pronounced. Yes. 
So I wanted to finish up because it's, I think Brown Brothers Harriman has just passed its 200th year of existence. And you alluded to some of the, the history to it. I just, I know it's a little um, off topic, but I'd love to get a, a couple of minutes on, on Brown Brothers and, and just some of the history there. Sure. Well, we are a uh, unique firm, Paul. As you know, we remain a privately owned partnership to this day. And we're really one of the only U.S. banks with a dedicated full service commodity finance team that focuses really on each sector, metals, agriculture, energy, and all of the logistics around each of those categories. So today we really focus on helping private companies and their owners. Many of those private companies are in commodities and logistics broadly, and we help them by providing capital to their business. And that capital could be trade finance, or it could be other types of debt capital and loans. And in some cases, it could be equity capital, where we can partner with a private entrepreneur or family business to help them grow their business. And then over time, as hopefully our partners in that business grow, um, we help them with advice and we help them with transition issues, with ownership issues, with all kinds of strategic matters, whether it's acquisitions, divestiture, sales. And we hope that we build the trust of of the owners of these businesses over time. And often um, as they generate liquidity through the ownership of these private businesses, and as we help them create wealth, the relationship evolves from this corporate side, as we call it, to the multifamily office side, where we can offer advice around trust and estates and wealth planning, as well as investing capital for multiple generations. And when you think about sort of the foundational principles of our firm, which I would say remain timeless, you know, even going back 200 years ago, Alexander Brown and his four sons, I think, really espoused these three principles. It's really about aligning our interests with our clients' interests. We want to make sure at all times we're sitting on the same side of the table as our clients and that our success is their success. We also believe firmly in in the value of a private partnership. And while public ownership is well-suited for many businesses, we think it's a privilege to remain private because we can really focus and invest in the long-term and not be bound by the vicissitudes of quarterly earnings and such. And then, you know, last but not least, it's really a stewardship culture where the executives of the firm are focused on protecting it, on serving the clients, hopefully continuing the business for many generations to come. You know, that we think and hope that's beneficial to our clients because we really don't have to be everything to everyone. We can make sure when we're looking at a piece of business that the fit is right for us and that the fit is right for the client. And that's good for for our profitability. It's good in the sense that we have the luxury of selecting our clients carefully and, and them selecting us. And it's great for our employees because the sort of wear and tear of having to say yes all the time really can disrupt the business in our opinion. 
Yeah. Well, a lot of values there that resonate with, with HCs. And both you and I have been with our firms for 17 years. So there's a, there's definitely that, um, that sense of stewardship, right? And if I remember rightly, I think, uh, to demonstrate how commodities is kind of riven through the business, I remember being in one of your conference rooms where I think, if I remember rightly, the tables made out of, uh, one of the, uh, the, the ship's hatches from one of your original merchant ships you mentioned earlier on. Absolutely. That was the Brown's foray into what we call a geographic basis trading, where they were, they realized that if they had the fastest ship to traverse the Atlantic, that they might gain an information edge and that might give them a competitive advantage in the marketplace. So similar, very similar investment thesis when you break it down to um, how the traders, you know, have have approached asset owning over the past decade. Straight out of a James Clavell novel. Well, anyway, Lewis, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Very insightful. And it's an unfolding story right now in the in the commodities markets and one that uh, I think every single boardroom and executive committee is uh, is front top of their agenda. So um, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.